The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Today we're going to begin a new teaching series. You can probably tell that already. It's going to be a short series. Uh, We just finished our study in Revelation last Sunday after about 11 months in the book. This next series is going to be seven weeks, seven Sundays. So it'll be a uh, a mini-series, if you will. And it's actually going to be the first of two series. We're going to do the first series uh, over the next seven Sundays, and that series is called Knowing Jesus. And then it's going to be followed up with a second series called Following Jesus. Knowing Jesus and Following Jesus. These series are both going to be topical. So unlike what we normally do where we pick a book of the Bible and work through it passage by passage, chapter by chapter, we're not going to be doing that over the next several weeks. We're going to be selecting different passages over the next seven Sundays. They're all going to be from the Gospel of Luke. And taken together, those passages are going to help paint for us a portrait of Jesus. That's the goal of this series over the next seven Sundays. We want to know Jesus. We want to behold him together. We want to see him and we want to experience him anew. That's the very simple goal that we have for the next seven Sundays. So, we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke. Why would we pick that? Well, if you want to encounter Jesus, the Gospels are one of the best places to go to do that. Uh, We're going to pick a handful of different passages. And uh, that together we're going to get a sense of what things Jesus said, what things Jesus did, and who Jesus is. We're going to have an opportunity, by God's grace, to look at him with fresh eyes together. Now, there's a couple reasons why we're doing this. First, I'm currently writing a, a Bible study on these exact same passages from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, the Bible study is intended for people who don't follow Jesus yet, but are interested or open in reading about him. And one of the main goals of the study is to help them get to know Jesus through God's word. And so since I'm already studying these passages for the Bible study I'm writing, we'll make double use of those labors over the next few weeks by preaching those passages as well. And I'm also planning to make the study guide that I'm writing available to all of you so that any family members or friends or people in your life who might be interested in reading about Jesus for themselves, you'll be able to go ahead and uh, and use that with anybody that, that you would like to. However, there's a second And I would say a more important reason for doing this series right now. And the second reason is because after this, we're going to spend several more Sundays looking at how God calls us as a church to live. Now, we've talked about this before. This should be no surprise to you. But when we look at the church in the New Testament, and then we look at our church today, or many other Western churches today, you could say, we see big disconnects in several key areas. And that's what the next series is going to be focused on addressing, following Jesus. What does it actually look like for us today as a church to be faithful followers of Jesus? Now, I can tell you right now, we're likely going to need to make some big changes in our life as a church and each of our lives personally as we take a look at what God calls us to do in his word. And in that series, we're likely going to set some very practical expectations of what obedience looks like for us as followers of Jesus, and we might even make structural changes to the way that we do church together. But if our hearts aren't in the right place, any steps we try to take to move closer to a biblical conception of church are going to be much more difficult. It's going to be much more difficult for us to change, much more difficult for us to take the steps that we need to if our hearts aren't in the right place. Our obedience to Jesus must be motivated by love. It must be motivated by Jesus. And so that's an even greater reason for doing this series that we're doing right now on knowing Jesus. Know Jesus, then follow Jesus. Do any of you feel like your love for God has grown cold? Or maybe it's still burning inside, but that flame you want to see fanned into a roaring fire. If that's the case for you, the answer is very simple. Know Jesus more. Look at him. Behold him. 
It's like stepping closer to a fire. The, stepper, the, the closer you step towards Jesus, the warmer your heart will become. If you want to warm your heart with love for God, if you want to be set on fire, if you want your life set ablaze with love for him and fear of him and faith in him, then know Jesus. Know him more. Step closer to the fire and you will be warmed. You'll take whatever steps you need to. We'll take whatever steps we need to as a church to become more obedient to him, regardless of what the cost might be for us. So knowing Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. Each Sunday I'm going to be uh, picking different passages for us to to study. For now I'll keep you in suspense as to which stories those will be. You probably noticed that we're not starting with the Christmas stories, uh, the first Christmas, the birth of Jesus. We'll get back to those later. I'll, I'll tell you at least right now that if you're bummed that we're not starting there, in a few weeks, we'll, we'll get back to those stories. Uh, but I was influenced by a couple Bible study guides, a couple other Bible study guides, in selecting and arranging the passages that I'm using for the study I'm writing, as well as for some of the questions, some good questions to ask and some good things to talk about. And the idea for this first section came from a study written by an author named Rebecca Pippert. And she starts off her study with the prologue to Luke's gospel and then the story of the paralyzed man being healed in Luke 5. And at first glance, that might sound like an odd place to start a Bible study on Jesus. Of all of the stories that you could pick from the life of Jesus, and specifically from the Gospel of Luke, why would you start here? And while I might not completely agree with the way that, that this particular author uses that passage, I do think it makes for an excellent first story. Perhaps you'll agree after we consider it together today. The title for the sermon is, Who is this fellow? That's the question that the religious leaders ask in verse 21, and they're probably saying it in a derogatory way. As in, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who is this fellow? It's a derogatory remark. But Jesus answers, and it's a profound answer. So with that, let me go ahead and pray. Don't worry, I factored into the time it would take to give you an introduction to the series. So if you're thinking, oh man, he hasn't even started the sermon yet. He's already been talking for some time. I promise you I was, I was considering that when I was putting this together. So let me go ahead and pray and ask that God would bless our time together in the Gospel of Luke over the next uh, seven Sundays. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and we are thankful for the Gospels that you've given us in your word, the biographies of the life of Jesus, what he said, what he did, who he was, We thank you so much, Father, for this gift to us. And we praise you for these accounts being preserved now for the past 2,000 years so that we can know Jesus together today. I pray, Lord, that over the next seven weeks, you would simply show us Jesus. I know that many of us would say that we want revival. We want spiritual revival in our own life and in our own church. We want to see it happen in our hearts. I pray, Father, that you would help us do one of the simplest things that we can do to make that happen, that you would help us look at you. Simply show us Jesus together. Show us him from your word. Cause us not just to know about him, but to truly know him. Please, Father, I pray that you would simply help us meet him there in your word, and that in so doing, we would be transformed, we would be changed we would be captivated by you. Please, Father, do this in us so that we can live and grow into the kind of church that you want us to be. Only you, Holy Spirit, have the power to do this. I pray that you would preach clearly through me, that you would make your word plain, that you'd help us to give all of our attention to your word, and that we would be truly transformed and changed as a result of seeing you, Jesus, as a result of knowing you. All this we pray in your name and for your glory. Amen. All right. Well, if you're not already in the Gospel of Luke, you can go ahead and turn there now. You know, normally we have kind of two or three points when we preach a sermon. They're oftentimes relatively well-balanced. That's the way we typically structure our sermons. Today's going to be different. We're not going to do it like that. I'm going to start off with a very brief introduction to the Gospel of Luke, and then we'll take a look at his prologue together. And then after that, we're going to jump ahead to Luke chapter 5, and we're going to consider this incredible story of Jesus healing a paralyzed man. We're going to contemplate the story together. We're going to encounter Jesus there, 
And then we're going to consider a few application points in closing. So that's where we're going with this. Make sense? Make clear? All right, well, buckle up. I'm, I'm, I'm really hoping that, this, that the next seven weeks as we dive into the Gospel of Luke together, I'm really hoping it's going to be a transformative experience for you, a transformative experience for us as a church as we seek to know Jesus and behold him anew. So, Gospel of Luke, the word gospel means good news. And since the story of Jesus is considered good news, the accounts of Jesus can be referred to as gospels. This particular gospel was likely written by a man named Luke. Luke was a medical doctor and a colleague of the Apostle Paul, who was one of the most prominent leaders in the early church. And the gospels, as a genre, for considering what type of literature these books are, they're similar in some ways to a form of ancient biography. For historical purposes, Luke's gospel is considered a primary source document on the life of Jesus. However, the gospels don't just tell history, they also communicate a theological message. Luke's gospel, hopefully as you know, is one of four gospels included in the New Testament, which is the collection of writings inspired by God written after the events of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. One of the four gospels, the others being Matthew, Mark, and John, all written by the people whose names they go by. Now, Jesus, he was likely born sometime around 6 to 4 BC, and he likely died on the cross somewhere uh, either in the year 30 AD or 33 AD. Luke's gospel, plausible estimate for when it was written, is sometime in the 60s AD, so only a few decades after the events of Jesus' life and ministry. The gospel of Luke is part one of his two-volume work, the second volume, the sequel to Luke's gospel, being the book of Acts, which we had a chance to study much more in depth uh, several months ago now. And, uh, of course, the, gospel, uh, uh, the book of Acts chronicles the, the, the works of the Holy Spirit in the early church after Jesus was taken up into heaven. So let's go ahead and read the opening words of Luke's gospel together. Help us get oriented to this book. Luke 1, starting in verse 1. You can follow along with me as I read through to verse 4. Again, we're studying uh, the series is going to be uh, preached from the NIV. So if you're following along in the ESV, you're going to notice some differences there in translation. But the study guide's being written in the NIV, so the sermons which I'm uh, going to be preaching on those same passages will also be in the NIV. All right, Luke says in verse 1, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind... Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. Interesting question. Based on Luke's opening words, does it sound like he was the first person to write things down about Jesus? Go ahead and look at the prologue again. Does it sound like Luke was the first person to write things down about Jesus? No. Luke says that many others have attempted to arrange or compile written historical accounts of the events that took place. Now, one reason Luke decided to write another account is because he says in verse 3 that he had, quote, carefully investigated everything from the beginning. And by everything he's referring to, as verse 1 says, the things that have been fulfilled among us, the history of Jesus. Now Luke describes these events as fulfillments because it was believed that Jesus and his story fulfilled certain expectations or promises in the Old Testament, particularly with regards to God's plan of salvation. Now look again at verses 1 through 2. There's something important to notice about these accounts. Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses. These written accounts, in other words, matched the accounts that were handed down by the people who were eyewitnesses to these events from the very start of Jesus' ministry. The written accounts match the accounts given by the eyewitnesses themselves. 
Now, what was the purpose of Luke's book? He tells us explicitly. It says that he wrote this work. The work is addressed to Theophilus. Of course, it's intended to be read by a broader audience, too. And uh, this person, Theophilus, the identity uh, of, of Theophilus is unknown. Luke calls him the most excellent Theophilus in verse 3, so he may have been a, a man of standing, perhaps even an official in the Roman government. Uh, he might also have been the patron of Luke's book, so the person who pays, uh, helps pay for it to be copied. Um, but the purpose of Luke's book is stated, or starting in the latter part of verse 3, you can read along with me. Luke says, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So the purpose of Luke's logically organized account of Jesus was to reassure Theophilus of the Christian message. And it should have the same effect on all of its readers today. How do you think Luke's account should increase Theophilus' confidence in the Christian message? How should it increase your confidence in the Christian message? Well, based on the prologue, Luke says that the accounts go back to eyewitness testimony, which is the best possible source, verse 2. It says Luke has carefully investigated everything from the beginning, verse 3. And it says the account he compiled is orderly, verse 3. It clearly demonstrates that the history of Jesus supports Christian teaching, despite how surprising and unexpected that teaching might be at times. So, now that we have a sense of the book that we're reading, let's go ahead and fast forward to one of the stories of Jesus. The historical setting of Jesus' ministry, it's located in the eastern Mediterranean, the same part of the, of the world as, modern day, as the modern-day nation of Israel. And Jesus, of course, was himself a Jew, and the Christian movement was an outgrowth of biblical Judaism. But at that time, the Jewish people were under Roman rule. So this was when the Roman Empire controlled the entire region surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. Luke chapter 3, verse 23 tells us that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was going around teaching. He was healing people miraculously. He was casting out demons. And Luke says that news about Jesus was spreading around. And that great crowds were gathering around him. Great crowds were coming out to him. Now, as we go to the story today, one, uh, one, uh, one thing I would like you to focus on as we go out and read through this is, uh, is to not just think about what you can learn from this story. I'm sure that this story is not new for, for many of you. As we, as we think about the story today, I want you to focus not only on what you can learn from it, but on, 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 on how it makes you, on, on what your response is, how it makes you feel, what, what, what the experience is uh, of, of, of engaging with Jesus through this story. In other words, I want you to focus on what you're feeling and experiencing in this story. So with that said, let's go ahead and look at Luke 5, starting in verse 17, this incredible story of Jesus. In verse 17, Luke says that one day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. The Pharisees were a Jewish religious sect at the time that promoted strict adherence to both the Old Testament law and to their extra-biblical traditions. And many of these traditions, they were supposed to help people obey the Old Testament law and to guard against that law from being broken. They were the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They largely controlled the synagogues, which was where Jews would gather for worship and for teaching. And then it says, in addition to the Pharisees, there were these people who Luke calls the teachers of the law, or scribes, as the text refers to them later. And these were probably legal scholars, most of them may have also been Pharisees. Now, why do you think in verse 17 it says they had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem? These people are traveling from all over the place to see Jesus. Why are they coming out? Well, as those in positions of religious authority, perhaps they wanted to check out this, this rising figure. 
They wanted to understand and evaluate his teaching, who he is, and the impact his ministry could have on the people and on their agenda as leaders. Now in verse 18, following, if you're following along here, it says, Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. So a group of men come in carrying a paralyzed man. This was probably a paraplegic, which means his lower body was paralyzed. Now again, I, I know you've probably read this story before, but I want you to just take a second to think about this. When you see people in a wheelchair, does your heart ever, does, does your heart ever break for them? You know, when, when you see somebody that's unable to walk out in public, you know, try, try to step into their life for, for just a second. You know, if you were paralyzed, what, what would you give for a chance to walk? What would you give for a chance to run? How do you think it would feel to be a burden to other people? To feel like you're, you're imposing on other people because of your disability? How would it impact the way other people look at you if you're paralyzed? Obviously, there are many things that you wouldn't be able to do by yourself. In fact, there are many things you wouldn't be able to do at all. Right? You will never run around with your kids in the yard. You will never dance with your spouse. And if your paralysis is the result of a brain or a spinal cord injury, which is often the case, there can be other devastating consequences that we might not, might not consider or be aware of. Now, we don't know the extent of this man's suffering, aside from his mobility being severely impaired. But one source said, quote, some of the most common effects of paraplegia include, listen to this, phantom sensations in the body, unexplained pain, or other intermittent feelings in the lower half of the body, a decrease in or loss of sexual function or fertility, difficulty with bladder and bowel function, secondary infections in the lower half of the body, particularly bed sores and skin problems, autonomic dysreflexia, rapid heartbeat, spikes in blood pressure, and other changes in autonomic function related to spinal nerve damage or traumatic brain injury. And then lastly, chronic pain. What I just described is a reality for many, many people. A reality for many people today. Real people just like us, just like you, just like me, with hopes and dreams and families, but very different lives from ours. We truly live in a broken world. I just want you to imagine for a second, if your friend, or maybe a close family member of yours, maybe a sibling or a spouse or a child, imagine if somebody that you loved were paralyzed. How much would you wish that you could set them free? Asha was, when I was thinking about this uh, in, in studying this passage, it was, it was really, you know, moving to me to, to consider this because I think, you know, in some cases, many of us would probably say it would be much more difficult to, to deal with somebody that we love being paralyzed than it would be to deal with that ourselves if we were the ones paralyzed. I know I can feel that. If, if my daughter, Abby, if my little daughter was unable to walk, my heart would desperately ache for her to be well again. Can you imagine what it would be like to just, I can, I, can, I can think about what it would be like to see her laying there, unable to move. To see her stuck in a chair, perhaps for the rest of her life. Now, look, look at what the companions of this man did. This paralyzed man. It says in verse 18, some men carrying a paralyzed man on a mat or some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat, and they tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. They're trying to get him to Jesus. Verse 19, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, there were too many people there, 
they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. It's an amazing thing these men do. What, were, what words do you think you would use to describe their action here? Some words that come to my mind are dramatic, persistent, persevering. Right? They're not going to let these crowds stop them from getting their friend to Jesus. They're determined. This was certainly a bold and creative move on their part. You know, many houses back then, this might sound a little strange to us, but many houses back then had stairways on the outside of the house that would go up to the roof, and oftentimes the roof was, was flat. And so they carry their paralyzed friend on those stairs up to the roof of this person's house, and they removed the tiles from the roof, and then they lowered him down through the ceiling on his mat to get him in front of Jesus. It's really quite a moving picture, isn't it? I mean, how, how loving of, this, of these companions. They so want this man to be healed. They so want to see him well. What do you think their actions reveal about their view of Jesus? If you're going to do something crazy like this, what do you have to be thinking about this man? What do you have to be believing about this man? Minimally, obviously, they believe that Jesus had the power to heal him. Or at least that God might heal him through Jesus. The paralyzed man presumably had the same faith. I dare say, if you believed the same thing about Jesus, you would do the same thing for your friend too, wouldn't you? Or for your daughter? Or for your spouse? If they were paralyzed and you believe Jesus has the power to heal them, wouldn't you do the same? You'd get around the crowds. You'd find a way to get them there. You'd go up on the roof if you'd have to. You'd open up the tiles if you'd have to. You'd lower them through the roof to get them there. You would do anything it takes to get your friend or your loved one to Jesus. This is similar, by the way, to why many Christians evangelize today. This is why we go out and share the gospel with people today. Because if Jesus truly can help them, if he can truly heal them, then we want to get them to Jesus. Just like these friends or companions want to get him to Jesus. Are you doing that? Are you bringing people that you care about to Jesus? Just like these men brought him the paralytic. Or perhaps you have less faith than they do. Or less love. I don't know which one's worse, to have less faith in Jesus, faith that he can truly heal them, or less love for them. You don't care about them enough to get them to Jesus. The response of the crowd is, is it's interesting to try to imagine what they would have thought of, of this. You know, they're in there, Jesus is teaching, and they see people coming through the roof. The tiles are coming off the roof, and a paralyzed man's being lowered down on a mat in front of them. I'm sure some of them were probably shocked by, by the dramatic action of these, of these men, right? Interrupting Jesus' teaching. He's trying to teach to this crowd, and they're interrupting him by literally coming through the roof. Maybe some of them were embarrassed or, or perhaps angry or indignant towards these men for impolitely intruding on, on, the, on the rising teacher. Maybe some of them were sympathetic towards their plight. You know, seeing how much they want to get their friend to Jesus, how much these companions want to get this man to Jesus. I think if you were in the crowd, you might be intrigued as to what's going to happen next, right? How is Jesus going to respond to this? The religious leaders, they may have had similar feelings too. Maybe they were surprised, perhaps even impressed, by how these men view Jesus, right? If the religious leaders hadn't witnessed Jesus perform a miracle before, and they're seeing people trying to get the sick, trying to get the disabled to Jesus, maybe that would impress them and surprise them about how highly these people viewed Jesus. For the purposes of evaluating him, they might also be interested in what he would do next. Now, we're not sure what exactly went through Jesus' mind when he saw this paralyzed man coming through the roof. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if he was moved with compassion towards him. And if he was impressed by the faith of that group. 
We read in verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Friend, your sins are forgiven. That's a curious reply, isn't it? It says he saw their faith. He saw their faith. When you hear the word faith, you know, oftentimes today we, we think of something that the Bible doesn't mean by that word, right? You know, when you hear the word faith, sometimes you, you get this picture of believing in something even when you don't really have a good reason to believe in it. Maybe you've heard the phrase, take a leap of faith, right? By that they mean just believe even if you don't really have any, any reason for, for believing that. That is not what Luke means by faith. That is not what the Bible means by faith. In fact, the Bible would never, ever condone believing something or encourage to believe something without good reason for believing it. We should always have reasons for what we believe. Based on the story, what do you think Luke, the author, means by the word faith? In this passage, as is often the case in the Bible, faith means belief and reliance. They not only believe that Jesus can help, but they go to him for help, right? They're personally calling on Jesus for healing. They're relying on Jesus' power to help if he chooses to do so. This faith in Jesus is certainly not without reason. Jesus has healed many other people at this point, and no doubt they've heard of his power. And Luke says that Jesus saw their faith. It was seen by what they did. Their faith in Jesus was revealed through their persistence, through their boldness, through their determination to get their companion to Jesus, even if it meant breaking through the roof of somebody else's house and lowering him through the ceiling. Jesus saw their faith. It was evident by what they did. But Jesus' response to their faith is very surprising. Verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith, he didn't say, friend, take up, uh, uh, get up, take your mat, and go home. He says, friend, verse 20, your sins are forgiven. He pronounces forgiveness for this man's sins. Sin refers to dishonoring and disobeying God. It is doing anything contrary to God's character and nature, or God's character and his commands. But Jesus' pronouncement of forgiveness, it raises two very interesting questions. The first would be, why would Jesus offer a paralyzed man forgiveness? I mean, surely they're coming to Jesus for healing, so why would he tell them, friend, your sins are forgiven? And second, I think even more importantly, how could Jesus forgive him of his sins? Even if this group thought that the paralyzed man needed forgiveness, they likely wouldn't have expected Jesus to provide it himself. How could he? Let's discuss the reason why he might do this first, though. Why might Jesus have offered this man forgiveness? There's a, a couple of reasons that are possible here. Uh, one is that the Bible teaches that there is a connection between sin and suffering. Right? In the beginning, God created the world good, and there was perfect harmony between creation and creator. But mankind broke that harmony by sinning against God. And now we live in a broken world, a world that's filled with suffering and sickness and pain and death. And it's in that sense that we can say all the suffering in the world today is a result of mankind's sin. But the Bible also teaches something else. It teaches that sometimes our suffering is a consequence of our specific sins. You know, we take communion every Sunday, and one of the reasons why we fence the table, why we say if you're not a baptized believer who's a member in good standing with your local church, refrain from taking this. One of the reasons why we say that is because in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that some of them, some of the Christians there, were sick and dying because they were taking communion in an unworthy way. Their suffering was a direct result, it was a consequence of their specific sin. In, uh, in, in the letter written by James, in James chapter 5, verse 16, James says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
That's not something that we take very seriously today, is it? Maybe I'm sick, maybe I'm suffering because I've sinned against God. That's a real possibility, according to the Bible. Now, Luke doesn't say that this was the case for the paralyzed man here in in chapter 5. But if it was, then he needed forgiveness of his sins before he could be cured. And that would make sense of Jesus' pronouncement, of him telling him that his sins were forgiven. But there's another possibility, there's another reason why Jesus might say this. Jesus cares about more than just this man's physical condition. He was there to heal people's physical sickness, and he was there to heal their deeper spiritual sickness. He offers healing not just from the consequences of sin, but from sin itself. The healing Jesus provides is holistic. It's complete. But that leads us to the second question. What gives Jesus the right to offer people forgiveness? You see, the the religious leaders, they realize the gravity of what Jesus was saying, of his pronouncement here. Look at verse 21. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Blasphemy, in this context, as one theological dictionary put it, means saying something that violates God's majesty. Blasphemy is going to come up again in the Jesus story when Jesus is condemned to execution. But what do you, what do you personally think of the religious leader's reasoning here? Do you think that they're correct in inferring that this is a blasphemous remark? Why might they think that God alone can forgive sins? Only the person who's wronged can let that wrong go, right? If, if Sarah is... I hope she doesn't mind me using this as an example. This isn't a true example. But if she were to hit one of your guys' cars pulling out of, the, out of the driveway here, you know, after a church service, if she were to hit one of your cars, I can't, go up to te- I can't go up to her and say, Sarah, you're forgiven for hitting that person's car. You don't have to pay for the damage. The consequences are released from you, right? As much as I might like to say that to her, I can't. I don't have the right to let that wrong go. Only the person whose car she hit can forgive her of that sin and pardon her of the consequence, right? Similarly, sin is dishonoring and disobeying God. Only God can forgive your sin. Only the person you've wronged can forgive you. And he's the one we need forgiveness from. Obviously, when we wrong other people, they can forgive us too. But the Bible, as you know, says that all of our wrongdoing, even against other people, is ultimately against God, the one who created them and cares about them and commands you to love them. All of your sin against others is ultimately sin against God. And the religious leaders are correct to think that God alone can forgive sins. Only God. He's the one you need forgiveness from. He's the only one that can forgive you. And so if God alone has the authority to forgive sins, and Jesus is speaking as if he possesses that authority, then what he said would certainly violate God's majesty. If it's not true. But Jesus intends to prove that it is. And this is where the story gets shocking. You can pick along, you can uh, pick up with me in, in Luke 5, verse 22. Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus sets up a test for his authority. In verse 23, Jesus asks, which is easier, to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Now, scholars have different opinions about what the intent of Jesus' question is here. Something that the question hinges on the words, to say. 
right? It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because there's no way to validate that visibly. It's harder to say, uh, it's, harder, it's harder to say get up and walk because everybody can tell if that wasn't effective, right? It's very easy to validate that visibly. But I don't think that's the intent of Jesus' question. I think the most likely answer to Jesus' question, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk, I think the most likely answer is neither. Both pronouncements are impossible for a man to make. Both of them. Pronouncing healing and pronouncing forgiveness. Neither of them are possible for a man unless he possesses God's power. If this paralyzed man miraculously gets up and walks, then clearly God is behind Jesus. And Jesus has God's power. In which case, they should trust his claim to forgive sins as well. Then comes the moment of truth in the story. Verse 25, after saying, after asking, posing this question. Oh, sorry. No. Verse 24. After posing the question, Jesus says, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. What happens? Verse 25. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. So Jesus tells the man, he speaks, and a miracle happens. In fact, it says he's healed immediately. Jesus speaks and he's restored. In that moment, the brokenness that this poor man has experienced is reversed. It's undone. And he's made whole again. His actions, they correspond to the impossible words of Jesus in the previous verse. Jesus said, verse 24, get up. Verse 25, he stood up. Jesus said, verse 24, take your mat. Verse 25, he took what he had been lying on. Verse 24, Jesus said, go home. Verse 25, he went home praising God. The impossible has just happened. The religious leaders, they thought Jesus was, was blaspheming. But Jesus, right in front of them, has been vindicated by God. He's been proven right by God. He does possess God's power. God is behind him. What do you think the response in the room must have been like? You can hear the audible gasps in the room, right? <gasps> As they see him stand up. Perhaps they, 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 utter, they started uttering you know, words of disbelief or words of shock. right? Maybe there were cries of amazement. I wouldn't have been surprised if the crowd started cheering or applauding at the impossible sight that had occurred, verse 25, right in front of them. They had seen it with their own eyes. They were all gripped with a profound sense of astonishment. The text says they were filled with awe. The word translated awe, it's the same word for fear. And in this verse, it's not fear as in the sense of, of terror or, or horror, but more like Fear in, in the sense of, you know, when you quake in the presence of something overwhelmingly great. Like perhaps when you stand outside on a very dark night and your breath is taken, taken away when you look up at the sky and you, and you experience the majesty and the vastness of the universe. When you behold something like that, fear, quaking, it says they were filled with fear. In the Bible, that's the response people typically have when they encounter God, right? Filled with fear. Verse 26 says, everyone praised God. How could they not? I mean, they recognized this as a work of God. They praised God. Imagine, what do you think this would have been like for the paralyzed man to experience? You know, there are certain moments that are, are life-defining for us. And oftentimes, you know, many of these life-defining moments are, are horrible moments. You know, your life can be defined, it can be changed when you tragically lose a loved one. Or perhaps if you get in a car accident and, and you're paralyzed, you lose your ability to walk. That'll define your life, that'll change your life. But every now and then, 
there will be moments in your life that change your life for good. They're life-defining moments, but they're good moments. This surely must have been one of those moments for this man. He comes in. He's laid down before Jesus, paralyzed, severely impaired. And he goes one moment from being paralyzed to the next moment feeling strength in his legs. At the words of Jesus, he experiences instantaneous freedom. In fact, the very mat he was carried in on, he now walks out carrying. How different his life would be from this moment on, huh? A new life awaits this man. Is it any wonder that his heart welled up with praise and that he went home praising God, as the text says? His meeting with Jesus changed him forever. He was forever changed. This was a life-defining moment. Him meeting Jesus, he's never the same. Now, how would you feel if you were one of this man's friends or if you were his family member? As we were talking about before, how would it feel, how would it feel for you to see this man standing up and walking, maybe even leaping for joy now? Try to put yourself in their shoes, right? If I, if I saw my daughter walking again, finally set free from her paralysis, if she had been paralyzed and I saw her now no longer in bondage to a chair, what would that feel like? I might burst into tears. I mean, what joy would would flood my heart at the sight of seeing her walking again. I think it would also bring a sense of very deep, life-giving relief that here this heavy sorrow which had been laying on me would now be lifted for her. This sorrow that I had for her, this ache that I had for her to be able to walk again, it's gone now. It's lifted now. I'm released from that now. No doubt I would be moved in love to Jesus. I would be forever indebted to him in gratitude. I would say, anything you want, Jesus, anything you ask of me, just tell me I'm yours. And I would certainly be praising God along with the rest of the crowd and along with the paralyzed man, praising him for such a great work. As we close our time in this passage, there are a few big ideas that I want to draw out from this story for us. Who is this fellow? Let's answer the derogatory question of the Pharisees. This story in Luke 5, it reveals something profound about Jesus. It reveals that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Now we might be quick to say as Christians that Jesus can forgive sins because he's God. And while it's true that he is the second person of the tri-personal God, that doesn't seem to be the point that Jesus is making here. He doesn't say in verse 24, I want you to know that I'm God in the flesh, even though he is. The main point of the passage, the point that he makes in verse 24, you can look at it with me. Jesus said, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man. That's the title Jesus uses to refer to himself. It's actually the title he uses the most frequently to refer to himself in the Gospels. This is the first time of 26 times that this title will be used of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. It's drawn from an Old Testament prophecy in the book of Daniel, written in the 500s BC. The prophet Daniel, he was sharing a prophetic vision he had received from God, and he said in Daniel 7, verse 13, in my vision at night, I looked and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away 
and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus says, that's me. He claims to be the one like a son of man in Daniel's vision. The heavenly figure who is the agent of God's kingly rule over God's people. By healing this paralyzed man in Luke 5, Jesus is revealing that the Son of Man himself has authority to forgive people of their sins. He, the Son of Man, has authority to forgive people of their sins. How exactly God can forgive people of their sins will be revealed later in the story when the Son of Man pays for the sins of his people through his death on the cross. Our forgiveness came at the cost of his own life. It was at the cost of his life that he was able to make these pronouncements because of the atonement he made through his own death that we can be forgiven of our sins. But I want you to think for a moment, how amazing would it be to have all your sins forgiven? To hear those words in verse 20 from the one who has authority to speak them. To hear the Son of Man tell you Friend, your sins are forgiven. Do you long for that? Do you want to hear those words from Jesus? All your sin, everything you've done, from the moment you were born to this very moment, every single sin, the greatest sins in your mind that you have ever committed, the ones that still haunt you today, the ones that you feel the deepest regret over, all your sin forgiven. I forgive you, he says. Gosh, how amazing it would be to hear those words. That they are completely cleared away. It's as if they never happened. That he has cast your sin as far as the east is from the west. That as the hymn says, it's like your sin is thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. To be completely released from everything everything wrong you've ever done. Every way you've dishonored God, every way you've disobeyed God, completely forgiven. Well, the good news, brothers and sisters, is that you can hear those words from Jesus. You can hear him say that to you this morning. You can have it gone from you. You can be completely free, completely, completely released from all of your sin this morning. Don't take it from me, take it from John's words in 1 John 1, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. He said, if you confess your sins, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You confess your sin to God. You come to Jesus this morning and you can hear those incredible words from him too. Friend, your sins are forgiven. Gosh, it's one thing to, to say that and to realize that, even to believe that, and to truly believe it. I know that there are times where I, I struggle letting sin go, where I've, 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 I've sinned against God or I've sinned against others, and I, I, I know that I can have forgiveness through him, but I just, it doesn't feel like that. It, it still weighs on you. And I'm sure that you've probably experienced that too, where, where it's still... It still haunts you. It's still there. It's still a burden on your shoulders and you can't be set free from it. Jesus says you can be. He has authority to completely, to totally forgive you. Gosh, how sweet that is to experience. To be fully released from all of your sin. How can you experience that? The story tells us. In fact, in the historical accounts that we have of Jesus, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's not uncommon to see a connection between experiencing Jesus' power and having faith in Jesus. Experiencing Jesus' power and having faith in Jesus. Those who believe that Jesus can save them and rely on Jesus to save them experience his salvation. In our story, the faith of these men was displayed in their bold and persistent determination to get their paralyzed companion to Jesus. And verse 20 says, when Jesus saw their faith, 
He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. As a result of their faith in Jesus, the paralyzed man experienced Jesus' spiritual, deep spiritual healing. The Bible teaches that you are like this paralyzed man. You have sinned against God. You have dishonored God. You have disobeyed God. And like this paralyzed man, you can experience the spiritual healing that Jesus offers by having faith in him to heal you. You can experience the same forgiveness by having faith in Jesus. Amazing. If you do not have that faith in Christ, put your faith in him today. Look to him. Believe that he can heal you and rely on him with all of your heart. Experience the incredible spiritual healing that he offers. Hear those words spoken to you by the Son of Man who has authority to forgive sins. Hear the one who has authority to forgive you say to you, friend, your sins are forgiven. I want that. I'm so glad that he, that he offers that forgiveness. You have the idea of Jesus' authority to forgive. You have the idea of faith. There's another big idea in this passage we won't talk about as much. It's actually developed over the course of the next five stories in the Gospel of Luke. Sometimes the Gospel authors, they'll string together multiple narratives side by side. And, uh, and they'll do that. Um, they'll, they'll sometimes string together stories that develop or relate to a, a particular theme. And this story is the first of five stories, five controversy stories arranged together in Luke where the religious leaders question or criticize Jesus. Luke shows us that Jesus was not accepted by the religious leaders, by the religious elite of his day. These five controversy stories end in Luke chapter 6, verse 11, where, quote, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Eventually, they decide to kill him. Later in the Gospel of Luke, in, uh, in Luke chapter 11, we find that some of Jesus' harshest words were for the religious leaders of his day. Among other things, Jesus confronted and condemned them for being clean on the outside but full of greed and wickedness on the inside, for neglecting justice and love for God, and for loading people down with burdensome teachings and traditions. It's fascinating to see how the religious establishment opposed and rejected Jesus. But the people, and in particular sinful people, received and embraced Jesus. We'll see this more in the sermon next week. Jesus as a friend to sinners. But the last idea I want to touch on before we wrap up our thoughts on this passage today is the right response to experiencing Jesus' power the right response to these events, to seeing a paralyzed man walking in front of Jesus, is the same response that the crowd had. It's to be seized with amazement, filled with awe, and to praise God. The response then should be the same response now. These truly are remarkable things, as they say. And we're invited in this story to wonder with the crowd and the man who was healed, and to join them in their praise to God. Do you feel that way? Are you astonished by what you've seen this morning? By what you've seen Jesus do? By what you've heard Jesus say and what you know now he has the authority to say to you? Do you feel something of the, of the emotion in the room that day? How could you not praise God? How could you not Thank him and exalt him and ascribe to him worth and glory and honor. How could you not burst forth in song and sing that song of praise in all that you do in life? Do you stand amazed as you look at this man, Jesus, who just proved that he possesses the power of God both to heal physically and spiritually? Who is this fellow? Will We'll turn to that question again next week. I hope you're looking forward to continuing our, our study of the Gospel of Luke together. Let me go ahead and pray. Father, I praise you so much 
for the writings of the evangelists, and specifically here for the writing of Luke, for this, inc- for this incredible account that you've given us of your son, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for being the son of man who has authority to forgive sins. Thank you for offering that forgiveness to each of us today, to all those who have faith in you like those men had faith in you. Please, Father, if there are any here in our body who don't have that faith in you, I pray that today would be the day that they put their faith in you and experience the healing that you offer, Jesus. And Father, for for those who have experienced but aren't living as if you've truly forgiven them, please cause the full weight of this precious and sweet pronouncement of forgiveness to be fully realized in our hearts and in our minds. Cause us to truly believe and to truly feel and experience the complete release that you offer us from all of our sin and to walk in that glorious freedom. I pray, Lord, that you would give us the faith of these men in you, that we would believe that you can heal us, that we would rely on you to heal us, and that we would experience that incredible, miraculous healing that you offer. And cause us to respond like the crowd, with amazement, with astonishment, and with praise to you, God, for you alone are worthy of it. These are your works, and you are worthy of praise. Help us to praise you every day as you deserve. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel, You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.